We are currently studying the book of Acts line by line. Uh, we've been in chapter 1 for <laughs> six years. That's how long we'll be in the entire book, pal. Uh, no, I, I hope not. Well, I hope so. Whatever. It doesn't matter to me. But um, it's the word of God, right? So it's like, what's the hurry, huh? We're always in such a hurry to get to this, to this, to this. But anyways, we're, we're doing a line-by-line study of the book of Acts. And uh, last uh, week, we looked at uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, and we really focused on Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. Kind of looked at him and analyzed him and looked at the scripture and what it says about him. We saw that kind of greasy tale, gru- greasy, gruesome tale that uh, Luke tells about him and how he bought a field and then committed suicide in that field and his guts spilled out and ugh, it's just kind of Freddy Kruegerish. But uh, that's where we were last week. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses uh, 21 to 26. We're actually going to finish chapter 1. Two miracles in history, right? Resurrection, and we're moving to chapter 2. Um, yeah, so in our, in our text today, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 21 to 26. In our text, what's, what's playing out is the 11 apostles um, are up in the upper room, and, and they've got, we're talking about the remaining apostles minus Judas, and then you've got a whole bunch of other disciples in there. You have about 120 people total, and uh, they're in this upper room. They've come down from the ascension of Christ, and uh, they're now in that room kind of awaiting the Holy Spirit to come and to change them and transform them and to prepare them to go out and reach the world with the, the gospel of God's grace. But they're up there, and uh, they've been praying and unified in prayer. And in our text, we're going to see them uh, choose a replacement uh, for the betrayer, for Judas. And in our text, Luke lays out several qualifications. I've counted at least four in there uh, that this new apostle has to meet. Um, Out of the 120 people that are there and present, there are like four key things that this person must meet, these qualifications, in order to assume the role of apostle. And so we're going to examine those things. Um, Out of the whole 120 people, uh, the remaining apostles focused on two guys uh, only two seem to meet these qualifications out of that larger number of people that were there. And so as we move through the text, um, I'll identify and, uh, identify and define each of these qualifications. But I'd like to begin by, by reading our section of Scripture, our study section, and then uh, praying, and then we'll examine it together, right? You want to get your pencils and all that stuff ready and, and get ready to take some notes and all that. And, you know, you might be thinking now, what's well, Easter you know, what about the big Easter thing, the big Easter extravaganza? Well, this is it. We got lilies on the stage, and here we sing some Easter songs. And you know what? Our text is really awesome because in God's providence, the way he does things, the resurrection is mentioned in this text, and so we can build a bridge there, which is really cool. But so often in churches, and I've felt this pressure all week, it's like, oh, I've got to break away from where we're at and what we've been doing, and I've got to do kind of six points on what the resurrection means or something. I've got to kind of copy the imprint and what most churches are doing or have done, and that's what I've been taught all these years. And it's like, no, man, God's provided it in our own text. So we'll kind of build a bridge there and, and tether it to the resurrection. It's going to be really cool. So, but God is good. So let me, let me read our main text, chapter 1, verse 21 to 26, and then we will uh, pray and then we'll begin to dissect it or examine it, whatever you want to call it, get to work. Uh, so one of the men who have 
accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from, now what they're saying is they're qualifying. This guy had to be someone that was with them. He says, so one of the men uh, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, talking about Jesus, one of these men must become with us a witness to his, to Jesus' resurrection, 23. And they put forward two, Joseph called Versabas, uh, who was also called, uh, we think it's Justice, but it's actually pronounced Eustos. And then they had a guy named Matthias. It's funny because the other guy gets like three cool names. The other guy's just Matthias. They always do that, right? This guy's like Versavis, and he's Justice, and he's cool. And then we got Matthias. And, and they prayed, and this is what the disciples, the apostles were doing. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, referring to Hades, terrible. And then 26, our last verse, and it says, And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, the guy that didn't have all the cool names, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. That's our text. Great text. Short but sweet and loaded with stuff. Let's pray. Father God, open our hearts and minds today to your word. Um, I know we pray a lot in our services, and we probably need to pray more. Prayer is becoming an absent thing, and we really need to bring ourselves before you in all humility um, to be prepared to receive whatever it would be that you would have for us as your word is unfolded. And so, God, give us hearts, uh, open hearts this morning and eyes to see your truth, ears to hear it, hearts to receive it. And we're just expecting great things uh, from you this morning, because when we come into your presence and listen to your word taught as you proclaim it, uh, it's an incredible thing, and miracles happen, and people are changed, and the saints are built up, and man, we want all that in a bag of chips this morning, Lord, so uh, may we just humbly pay attention and be open to you, and not distracted one iota from uh, life and just the things that we're experiencing, or whatever it is that we have going uh, it's Easter morning, we're sitting here learning from you, and that's a glorious thing. So may we be attentive and focused and humble and open. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's begin with uh, verse 21, and we're not going to get real far in it. We're going to just go right to the point where it says, So one of the men, um, the first requirement is that the new apostle had to be what? A man. Uh, this is... I felt like I didn't need to stress this point, but I think in the church today there's great confusion about the roles of leadership. Um, and, uh, you know, men and women are often placed or assume roles uh, that, that are either beyond or beneath the actual biblical requirements. Uh, we have men that basically in so many ways have forfeited their divinely appointed uh, roles as pastors and elders and deacons and and we see women who have kind of forfeited their divinely appointed roles as supporters and foundational workers and stuff like that to sort of embrace some of those male positions. And, and, and in all reality, and I just want to be very sensitive uh, because men and women are completely equal and gifted in extraordinary ways. Um, you know, when, when you get to know me, you're going to see so much of my wife's influence in my life and how God has used her to sanctify me. I would be a flaming, flipping train wreck 
without her in my life and how God has used her. So in, in what I'm saying, I do not mean to demean and to exalt men or any of that stuff at all. I just want to be sensitive. Uh, but the reality is, the scriptural reality is, is that God has in his economy of doing ministry and church and leadership, he has a particular way that he wants things done because that way of doing it is the most effective way in getting the things done that he aims to get done and ultimately bringing him the most glory and praise. And so... The scriptures are very, very clear about uh, the roles of leadership. And I'd like to submit this as well, that um, the apostolic or title of apostle is not available any longer in the church. And yet, if you watch some of these characters on TV, you'll see, you know, Joe Blow, apostle of this church and all of that. And the title apostle belonged to the original apostles, and I would include Paul in that because he was absolutely apostle. But the title literally sort of died off when uh, John the apostle died at like 115 A.D. It, you know, the apostle title belonged to those original apostles. It hasn't gone beyond that. And so, uh, like I said, today you have people calling themselves apostles. I'm not sure why. Uh, most of the time they're from Kentucky. So it could be the water, you know, I don't, I don't know why, but that is a title that, that doesn't exist any longer in the church. And, 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 and you see it too, I've seen it in instances where it's uh, Joe and his wife Sherry, the apostles of such and such church in Broomstick, Alabama or whatever it is. And there's no such thing, but you know, it's like, it's like okay, he's an apostle and she's an apostle, and it's just really confusing, and, and why is that? And, and you know what? By God's economy, that title was, uh, was labeled on a handful of men, and, and no more, no less. And so we don't have apostles today. Uh, it's a specific, special thing. Now, the three highest uh, positions of leadership in the early church I'll say, and I think in the church today, minus the apostle position, but the three highest positions of leadership in the early church were apostle. These guys were kind of the foundational dudes that had these personal experiences with Jesus and were witnesses to the resurrection and these things. And then obviously you have, we don't even see pastor, that title in, in the scriptures anywhere. We see elder, but an elder is, is like a pastor, someone who teaches the word and, and protects the sheep and exercises discipline and those things. And then you have a deacon, you've heard of deacons, and uh, the scriptures really make it clear that all three of those positions, apostle, elder, and even deacon, are to be fulfilled by men. And some would say, wait a minute, there's deaconesses. Well, if you really research it, you'll find that there really aren't. But apostles, we can see that illustrated uh, in, in several texts where we see it being a, a male thing. Uh, one in particular is in Mark 3, 16 to 19, where Jesus appoints the apostles, and he appoints 12 men. Um, and then obviously in our text too, we see that this guy, you know, in our Acts text, that this person that was going to be this replacement for Judas had to be a man. And then as far as like elders goes, uh, Timothy's a fantastic passage on church leadership and structure and stuff like that. But we see in 1 Tim 3, 2, it says, therefore an elder must be above reproach. Okay, can't be blamed for a bunch of sin and junk. And then it says the husband of one wife. Okay, not the wife of one husband the husband of one wife. So an elder has to be a male. He's got to be the husband of one wife. Uh, I don't know how singleness plays into that. It just says that. It doesn't say that he can't be a single guy. 
uh, but it definitely says that he needs to be the husband of one wife. You can't have multiple wives, whatever. Uh, and then as far as deacons go, and this is the one that's so questionable, you know, it's like we have deaconesses here and all that. I was in Beardsley's the other day. They're having a clothes-out sale, and they had all these little badges and all that, you know, and you can buy it for your church and all, but deaconess, you know, and I was like, oh, I don't know. But First Tim 3.12 says, let deacons each be the what? The husband of one wife uh, and managing their children and their own households. Well, and, and the thing with deacon and elder is the positions are really the same. One just has to be apt to teach, and that would be the elder. The deacon, I guess, he doesn't have to, have to teach like in a pulpit setting or I don't know, whatever it is, but I know deacons that teach. But anyways, uh, you know, the, the roles are very well plainly laid out in Scripture. And, and, and the deal is that when we set our hearts and minds and... and uh, our desires on fulfilling God's word uh, to the best of our ability, uh, obeying it uh, the best that we can and putting the right roles out there and having the people in the right roles, the church actually functions to its full capacity. And, and one of the problems is today, you know, you've got these mixed roles and all this, and, and people seem to think that it's okay because they're not experiencing a whole lot of trouble when they have this person in the wrong role or whatever. But here's the bottom line. Anytime you're disobedient to God's word, trouble's coming. It's going to come at some point. You're going to have to deal with some things. You're going to have some problems and some issues. And that's just what disobedience breeds, does it not? And so it is so important and so imperative that we search the scriptures as Bereans and that we apply them in, in uh, the practical and literal sense and that we obey and fulfill God's mandates across the board. And then you will ultimately have a blessed church, blessed ministry, and, and you will be able to fulfill and satisfy God and do the purposes and all the things that he wants you to do. It's a very, very important thing. So the first thing was that we can see that um, it had to be a dude. Had to be a guy, and not just any guy, because there's some other qualifications here. The second requirement is that the new apostle, the replacement, had to have, he had to have accompanied Jesus and the other apostles from the beginning of the Lord's ministry to the end. We see that very clearly in verses 21 and 22, uh, where Luke records, uh, who have accompanied us. This person had to have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. And then he says, this is really awesome in 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. Uh, Luke incorporated the entire breadth or width of Jesus' ministry in 22. He takes it all the way back to the time that the Lord Jesus was baptized all the way forward to the point of his ascension. The candidate had to have been a follower from the starting point to the ending point without any lapse in between. Very interesting. The candidate had to be one that the others, the other disciples, the other apostles were very well acquainted with. He had to be viewed as a loyal friend, companion, and fellow, fellow worker for the gospel for the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to have displayed consistency, devotion, holiness, righteousness, and perseverance. Um, we all know that during the ministry of Jesus, Jesus and his men that followed him and were his students received quite a bit of, of, of persecution. The, the Pharisees 
the Sadducees and the Herodians were on him like a cheap suit all the time, trying to plan on how to kill him, how to get him out of position, trying to tempt him with certain things, trying to call him on the law. And, and quite frankly, these guys that were traveling with him had to deal with a lot of junk. You know, the gospel brings junk. The gospel calls people on their junk, and that's why they get all blowed out and just, oh, that just church is just stupid, and I hate it, and whatever. They're just, you know, they're so condemning there, and, you know, and some churches, I guess, can be that way. They're pretty insensitive when it comes to the gospel, but you know what? The gospel wrecks people. It jacks them up. It jacked me up when I heard it. I was like, oh, I'm a turd. Oh, man, are you kidding me? I'm like a sinner and separated from God, and... And, and, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm headed to hell, and, and, and maybe these are all the reasons why my family's exploding and my life is bad. And what, really? The gospel doesn't say, you know, oh, you're okay, and I'm, you're just, we're going to keep you the way you are. You know, no, the gospel says, look, you're in a really, really bad position. You're spiritually dead to God. And unless something changes, you will perish. And so as Jesus goes out and proclaims this coming kingdom and this gospel message, these guys took heat, man. They took heat. They took heat. When Paul went into Ephesus and preached the gospel, the town didn't go, oh, 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 it's so wonderful and glorious. No, they had riots. Oh, you're telling us that our big false god Artemis is trouble for us? Yeah. Yeah, because Artemis won't deliver. <laughs> he's, just, he's just wood and stone. You need to get right with Christ. You know, and so Ephesus, <laughs> nuclear bomb blast there, you know. We got testing grounds out in Santa Fe, New Mexico down there, you know. I mean, just it was just rough stuff. So this was a guy that had to be with them for the full duration of that ministry. And his ministry, Jesus' ministry did begin at his baptism. It began with him going off and being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. When he came down off that hill, out of that wilderness, whatever it looked like, man, he embraced his ministry. He immediately started doing ministry in Judea. And this guy had to be someone who was present from that point on to the ascension and that he had to be loyal and consistent and devoted and had to uh, exercise perseverance and show that he could persevere and he, that he stuck to it, man. That's such a huge thing in the church today. People just don't stick to the stuff. Now, since he had to be an original begin, you know, beginning to end kind of guy, he would have been present for nearly everything that Jesus did, minus those things that took place with him and his personal 12, and then even Jesus had like a personal three in there, Peter, James, and John, where he went up to transfiguration. This guy would have been close in close proximity and witnessed everything that took place except for some of those really intimate and personal things that Jesus kept to the 12 or to the three, which means that he would have been at the wedding at Cana where Jesus performed his first miracle by turning water into wine, John 2.8. He was there. He probably had a couple of glasses of that delicious Cab Sauvignon, whatever, and this is wonderful, you know. I mean, he, he was there. I mean, he would have been present for that. He would have been present when Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. You know, Jesus went to Capernaum, one of the first places he went to when he began his uh, ministry in Capernaum, is he went there and, and they set up a base at Simon Peter's mother-in-law house, and they did all kinds of ministry out of there. Well, like the first night they get there, she's jacked up with the flu, and she can't wait on anyone, and she wanted to prepare meals and all that, but she was in the bed. He goes in there and you know, and she gets up and she's cooking. That's just all. I tried that with my wife. It doesn't work. I just go in there and go, and she's just like, toasted cheese, get busy. I'm like, oh, dang it, you know. It's not happening for me. Ramen. And it's like, no, I need prime rib. But, you know, 
he would have been there for that. He would have experienced that to some degree. He may not have been right next to Jesus when it happened, but he was close and he knew what happened. He would have been present when Jesus cleared the temple for the first time, John 2.15. You know, so many of us don't realize that Jesus opened up a can of whoop butt in the temple twice. We often think of him coming and doing it in, during his Passion Week, which he did. We don't realize that when his ministry first began, he came in there and fashioned a cord of three rods and whipped their butts, man. Get out of here. You turned this place into a, a den of robbers, man. Are you kidding me? You know, he jacked them up, man. He tried to purge that place. And so he would have been there going, dang, Jesus is bad, man. <laughs> that dude's got like Wing Chun, <laughs> you know, like Ip Man, right? Where's my friend at? You ever seen Ip Man? That's like the best karate movie ever. Jesus was the Ip Man. He would have been present. This guy would have been around when Jesus fed 5,000 plus people. And then he would have been around when Jesus fed 4,000 people. Mark 6, 30 to 44 and Mark 8, 1 to 9. He would have been there. He would have been able to enjoy those loaves and fishes with so many other people because he would have been present there. He would have been, now here's really cool. He would have been one of the 72 men that was sent out to preach the kingdom and to perform miracles in many towns before Jesus visited them. Luke 10, 1 to 12. Remember that when he sent out the 72? He would have been one of those guys that was sent out. He was one of those 72 disciples. So he went out and was gifted to go out and proclaim the gospel and to perform miracles. Really stinking cool. He would have been present when Jesus healed 10 lepers. Uh, towards the end of his ministry, before his Passion Week, Luke 17, 11 to 19. He would have been present at the triumphal entry at the beginning of Jesus' Passion Week. He would have been there. He might have been somebody them slapping them palm branches down on the ground and going, Hosanna, Hosanna, I don't know. He was there. He was around. He was present. He would have been present during the second cleansing of the temple where he would have said, dang, Jesus is bad again, man, Wing Chun, hot. You know, he would have watched that. He would have been, now here's the thing, he would have been present when... Jesus' trial and sentencing took place. You know, that happened out in Pontius's and Pilate's colonnade, big columns all around. It was this circular thing where he judged the, the affairs of the people uh, in the morning times during the week. And he would have been there watching Jesus be falsely tried and convicted and condemned to the cross. He would have been there and he would have been seeing his Savior up there going through that, and he had already been beaten all night long and all that, and, and he was in bad shape. He was, he was roughed up. He would have seen that. He would have watched that uh, play out. And, and there's no doubt that he would have probably, I, I would suspect, he would have been a distant onlooker at the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Luke 23, 27 says that many people, many of his disciples, bore witness to that from a distance. They didn't get into the real closeness because they were afraid that they would be persecuted and maybe put on a cross too. I don't know why, but he'd have been there and he'd have watched his Savior falsely judged and then nailed to a cross to die a horrific death. And then he most certainly would have been a witness to the resurrected Christ. 1 Corinthians uh, 15.6 says that Jesus showed himself to over 500 people in one instance, that he revealed himself, that he came out of the tomb and all that, and a day or two later or whatever, he showed himself to many, many people, the apostles, disciples, Mary Magdalene, women first, amazing, and then 500 other people. Man, this guy was one of those guys that was like, wow, what you said really has come to pass. It's you, you're back. He would have been a witness to the resurrected Christ. Christ revealed himself to him. So this guy 
Bottom line, why have I gone through all these things that he would experience? I just want you to know he was there. He was present from the beginning to the end. He had to be or else he didn't qualify. The third requirement, and this one's absolutely huge. The third requirement is that the new apostle had to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus, not just a witness of it, not just that he had seen Jesus risen and then Jesus ascended, but he had to be a witness to the resurrection. That was a prerequisite. That was a requirement. Look at 22. It says, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. One of the most important qualifications for an apostle is that they had to be a witness to others about the resurrected Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the fourth component of the gospel. Okay, so many people think of three uh, components to the gospel, but I always include the fourth because it's so key to the others. And what are they? They are the life of Jesus. That's the one that's always left out. We always think of the death, burial, and resurrection as the gospel. Guess what? You don't have the gospel if you don't have the life of Jesus because he lived a perfect, righteous life. He fulfilled the law perfectly, never breached it, never broke it, never sinned. And it's so imperative that we understand that because, because he's done that, he's done what we could never do. We could never fulfill and obey God's law perfectly. We're horrible at it. We stink. Impossible. Hello, we needed someone who could. So... The life of Jesus is imperative to the gospel. He lived this perfect life, and then he died on the cross for sinners. He took their sin, shame, and guilt, condemnation on himself. And then we have the burial. It's imperative that he goes off into the tomb, and he stays there for three days. And then what do we celebrate today? The resurrection. That is the gospel, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why was it so important for an apostle to witness to the resurrection? Well, there are a ton of of reasons, um, and it would, I just, I couldn't even, I mean, I could probably point out, if I were to try to, if I would have tried to have write this next section myself, I probably could have covered a couple of them and probably didn't do them a whole lot of justice, and so what I decided to do was I turned to a fantastic doctrinal book that describes just about every conceivable aspect to the resurrection. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read some sections from it just to minister to you. And what's going to happen is it's going to help to flush out the importance of why an apostle had to be a testifier to the risen Christ. Um, let me begin by reading some of this stuff here. And this is just a super book. And I can afterwards point you to it if you want to read some of this stuff. And there were like 20 pages on this. I only took like a couple of chunks from a couple places because there's no way I'd have time to read it. But anyways... The importance of the doctrine of resurrection. Guy begins by saying, if Jesus is dead, then Christianity is dead. If Jesus is alive, then Christianity is alive. Paul himself declared as much in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So we can begin to see how important the resurrection is to the gospel and to salvation. Death on the cross doesn't pull it off completely. Resurrection is the final component that is necessary and has to be there. And it's always been a big thorn in my side that we don't talk about the resurrection enough in the church. And we wait once a year to talk about it. Then we really don't talk about it. We just do an altar call and try to get people saved without giving them the full spiel. The resurrection is such a core doctrine 
to our faith that we must examine it in regularly. And for crying out loud, the church shifted from this Jewish way of doing church on Saturdays with Sabbath on Saturdays to Sundays because Christ was risen on a Sunday. I mean, the way that we do church is based upon the resurrection. So much of our faith and so much of what we do is based upon that essential doctrine. So it's so imperative. It is to the point where Scripture says, if he doesn't rise, you don't have diddly squat. Your faith is in vain. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no Savior, no salvation, no forgiveness of sin, and no hope of resurrected eternal life. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus is reduced to yet another good but dead man and therefore is of no considerable help to us in this life or at its end. Plainly stated, without the resurrection of Jesus, the few billion people today who worship Jesus as God are gullible. Their hope for a resurrection life after this life is the hope of silly fools who trust in a dead man to give them life. Subsequently, the doctrine of Jesus' resurrection is, without question, profoundly significant and worthy of our most careful consideration and examination. So right there, he begins his doctrinal thesis on resurrection by saying that without it, we got nothing, man. So we begin there. Now, I want to talk about what the resurrection has accomplished for Christians what it means to us and what it has accomplished and what its implications are, how it applies and what it's done for us. And this is also, this helps to bring a level of importance to why the apostle had to be someone who would go out and witness to it because these are the implications. This is what it means. He goes on to say, Jesus' resurrection reveals him as our Messiah King in the Davidic covenant, that covenant God made with David. God the Father promised that his son, Jesus Christ, would be raised from David's lineage to rule over an everlasting kingdom. Paul reveals that this was fulfilled at the resurrection of Jesus. He said, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by what? His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what the apostle Paul wrote. Now that the risen Christ has been installed as our Messiah King, we can rest assured that one day Jesus will return to establish his throne on earth and rule over his kingdom, which extends to all of creation. He goes on to say, Furthermore, following Jesus' resurrection, an angel declared, He is not here, for he has risen, as Jesus said he would. Therefore, the resurrection is proof that Jesus' teaching was and is truth that we can trust. Practically, Jesus' resurrection gives us confidence in his other promises that we are waiting to see fulfilled, such as his returning one day to judge sinners and reward saints. The Bible often speaks of our being united with Christ by his resurrection, being raised with Christ, and enjoying the same powerful Holy Spirit that raised Christ. In so doing, the Bible is stressing the innumerable blessings and benefits conferred on believers because of Jesus' resurrection. Paul stresses the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins. You know, so often we think that all that forgiveness pours forth from the cross. No, it's enacted at the cross and it comes forth through the resurrection. 
Paul stresses that. He, he stresses that through the resurrection we have forgiveness of sin. So without it, we don't. Because of Jesus, those with faith in him can live with the great joy of knowing that all their sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven once and for all by Jesus Christ. He goes on to say a little bit more. Furthermore, as the power of Jesus' resurrection works itself out in our sanctification, in our transformation as we're being made holy, we grow in holiness, learning to live in victory over sin, until one day, upon our own resurrection, we will live forever free from the presence, power, and practice of all sin. Now, these implications are just amazing. This is what the resurrection means for us. Again, elsewhere... Jesus' resurrection is spoken of as the source of our justification, thereby enabling us, though sinners, to be declared righteousness in the sight of God. Paul explicitly states that Jesus was what? Raised for our justification. Regarding, and here's where I love it, it really gets me excited because here's where our, our real hope comes in of our future. It says, regarding our future, Jesus' resurrection is the precedent and pattern of our own. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As his body was resurrected in complete health, so too we will rise and never experience pain, injury, or death ever again. This is because through the resurrection, Jesus has put death to death. Isn't that wonderful? Man, he put it to death. We will not experience death ever in a glorified body we receive in the future. What a spectacular thing that is. And I'm going to love it because no more diets. You know, ice cream forever, I guess. Every time I eat it, it's just something just explodes. I mean, whatever. I mean, that's just a trivial thing. But no more health issues. In fact, you know, we, we have one of our own beloved folks who's a part of this church who isn't with us today because of that very thing. On Friday, a kidney stone explodes on her, and she's laid out. She's been in the hospital for a couple of days. My sister-in-law, Carol, went and visited her last night and prayed over her, and she's doing better. But, you know, there are no kidney stones. And I've had one of those things. Women are all, oh, childbirth. Nah. Oh. Kidney stone. Anyone here had a kidney stone before? Yeah? No? Yeah? You like it? <laughs> you pray for another one? Well, guess what, Bruce? Someday you're going to have a body that is indestructible and no more kidney stones and no more pains and no more hairline going back like it is, my brother, on you. No more of that. My beard, you know, I ran out of Just for Men. I, I know I use it. I'm not just the, the owner of the company. I'm a client. Um, <laughs> No, you know, I just, no more gray. I mean, it's just, it's going to be a spectacular thing that's, that's coming to us. That's coming to us. And, I, and I'm so absolutely stoked about that. Through the resurrection, Jesus has put death to death. And now the full effects of Jesus' resurrection will be seen one day following his return. The time, and this is so critical for us, the time between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection is a lengthy season of love, grace, and mercy as the news of the gospel goes forth, inviting sinners to repent of sin, to turn from their sin, and to enjoy the present and future salvation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that so true? We so think of salvation as this future thing. No, it's now. 
there's joy that comes through it now. There is transformation and companionship with God and unity with him and fellowship with the body. Salvation is not just, oh, I prayed the prayer at the 99 and now I'm saved and I got the sweatshirt. No, it's so much more than that. It's not just something that takes place after you breathe your last breath. It is so much something for us now. Salvation is now. We experience it now and the fruits of it now. <clears throat> Paul preached just this fact, the urgent need for sinners to repent. He said this in the book of Acts. It's so spectacular. The times of ignorance, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who has been appointed to be that judge. And then he says, and of this he has given assurance to all by what? By raising Jesus. That's that judge from the dead. You can see just, there's, it's a real shotgun blast approach to the doctrine of resurrection. But all of these little implications, all of these little implications, and there's, there's so many more things to it. You know, that through the resurrection, we actually have the Holy Spirit power within us to conquer sin and to get over sins and to have mastery over certain sins. Now, we don't reach perfection in this life. I think most of us understand that there are some out there that teach you do, and that's just a false teaching. We don't receive that level of perfection while we're taking in air in our lungs, but when we breathe our last, it all comes to a culmination in glory. But, you know... Because of the resurrection and because of the imparting of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost into our lives once and for all, we have power over sin. You know, I'm a dreadful sinner. I mean, just ask my wife. She'll tell you. Oh, I love him, but he's thinner, you know? But some of the things that I wrestled with 10 years ago, I don't wrestle with those things anymore. I wrestle with other things now. It's like as soon as you get mastery over one, just... It just, another one pops up. You're like, oh, man, thought I got there. I didn't. You know, and sin is a great reminder that we need God's grace, is it not? Boy, if we just thought we were perfected and felt that way all the time, we'd be what? Pharisees. And we know what Jesus said to them. Woe to you, you nimrods, you know? Wow, you guys are really, you guys are hypocrites. You think you're perfect and walking around. That's what we'd be. You know, sin is a great reminder that we need God's grace. But at the same time, through the resurrection, we have power over sin. We don't have to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, remain in some of those patterns and those things. We can get victory over those things through Christ. And then we move from one to another, and, and then God begins to do a sanctifying work on that particular thing and that particular thing. And God is so gracious the way that he does it. I think if he just transformed us all in one shot, and it was just from complete sinner, lost, depraved, headed to hell, to perfect in one blast, we wouldn't even be able to survive that kind of transformation. We'd just, you know... But it's this process, and it's through the resurrection that we enter into the process. It's such an important doctrine. It's so key. And so now we can kind of see why this candidate had to be a witness of it, I believe. He had to see the risen Christ, but he had to be a witness to it. And here's the thing, man. If you look at the book of Acts, the central theme in all apostolic preaching was what? The cross? No. It was the resurrection. That's what those men talked about all the time. Absolutely, they pounded that cross and repentance and sin and the coming kingdom, those things. But the resurrection was all the way up to about the 11th or 12th chapter 
in the book of Acts, while those apostles were pretty much still breathing and living and doing their ministry, the central theme was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without it, our faith is futile. Without it, we have no power, no access, no nothing. We are damned. We are fools for believing in Christ. So this guy had to, he had to have that down, and he had to be a, a willful proclaimer and preacher of it. Now, when the apostles surveyed the 120 disciples, as I said earlier, only two stuck out. There were two men in that group that kind of fit the bill, and we see it in 23. It says, and they put forward what? 120? No. They put forth Two, and it says, Joseph called Barsabbas, the guy who's got all the cool names. I don't know what Barsabbas is. I always call him Barabbas, and that's a big jacked up thing. Joseph called Barsabbas, who wasn't Barabbas, who was also called Eustos, or Justice, I guess. And then we've got Matthias. Two guys fit the bill. Two men fit the profile. Two men, in their eyes, met the qualifications. Two men had been present from the beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, they had been witnessed, two men had been witnesses of the resurrected Christ. He revealed himself to them. And the apostles believed, those who were choosing these men believed that these guys would be witnesses to the resurrection as well. They, they'd seen their lives, they'd watched their lives closely, they'd spent about three, three and a half years with these guys. They watched them and they knew, hey, these guys are going to be out proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're going to do the job well. They're going to be obedient. Now, there is something quite extraordinary in this little text here that the church can learn a lesson from. And, and you need to know, whenever I pull into question or call into question some of the practices of the church, I don't do it because there's a spirit of meanness in me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I get ticked off at what the church does. I get ticked off at what I do in the church because church is always perfect until people show up, right? As soon as they get in there, it goes right down the tubes. I'm one of them. But whenever I talk about the church and, and some of its doings, it's, it doesn't come from a spirit of anger towards the church or hatred towards the church. I love the church. We are called to love the church. Jesus died for his church, and so we can't criticize it in certain ways, but we can point out errors in it so that we can learn and not make similar mistakes and so that we can do the right thing and, and, and handle the gospel well. So when I make comments and stuff, don't think, man, he's just ticked off at the church. He's mean. He hates the church. Are you kidding me? We planted one. No, I love the church. But there's things in the church that need to be addressed and that we need to learn. And so not from a spirit of anger or anything, but just from a spirit of concern and passion and love for the church. And, and I would like to submit in light of that, that the church can learn a powerful lesson from that little verse right there, that choosing of two. You know, there are so many people or men that are appointed to, to very, very important positions in the church today that shouldn't be in them. They just shouldn't be in them. You know, they, they just should And in fact, men that assume the role of a pastorate, eldership, those kinds of things, uh, they ought to have fear over their position because they're judged more critically than the average Joe Christian. But men, the church just like seemingly slaps people very flagrantly in key positions in the church. And we're always wondering why this explodes over here at this church, or we see this thing happen in Colorado at New Life and all these things. And one of the reasons why is because the church handles hiring, screening and hiring these men of God in a, in a way that's just not right, I think, at times. 
In fact, seminaries in so many ways have become like clergy mills, pastoral mills, pastor mills, where they're just cranking out clergymen left and right. And the reality is, is that a seminary can't make a man a pastor. No level of education can make a man a shepherd of God, a pastor of God, an elder, or even a deacon for that matter. All of those things are the work of God. And yet in the church today, we see men appointed and then we see trouble and sin and adultery and all these things. And, and, and I firmly believe that it's because the church is putting the wrong guys in the wrong places. And quite frankly, they're putting women in the wrong places too. Because at some churches you have 12 women elders and it's like, wow, sorry man, that's just not scriptural. And so guess what? You're going to experience some stuff there. And why is it that the church does that? And when I say these things, I'm not exalting myself. I have great fear over my position. It scares the hell out of me. Literally, like, I don't want to experience any judgment or any of those things because of me holding a position that's considered by God to be a very, very, very important position. I mean, I always have this fear of, like, judgment, and not hell in the literal sense, so I shouldn't say that, but it's like, wow, what I'm doing... Um, yeah, I'm going to be judged pretty critically for those things. And so, you know, there's always that fear of that. So I'm not exalting myself by saying this because I'm, I'm guilty too in some ways. But here's the deal. Why does the church just slap people in these positions? I think it's because of this consuming desire in the church to build massive attractive ministries. And because of that desire and passion to build massive and attractive ministries, the church has to meet, get people in those positions to meet those needs and to head up those ministries and to do these things. And so because there's such a tremendous um, pressure to get people into these positions because we have these massive ministries that sometimes the standards for hiring come down a bit, you know, and, and we just pretty much stick people in the hole. And, and at some, in some places it almost becomes that whole warm body philosophy of, well, he loves the Lord, we know that, and he professes Christ, and he meets a couple of these little thingies or whatever, and let's just kind of stick him in the position and let him run with it, you know? And I think it's because of this, it's this consumeristic attitude about we've got so many needs to be met, so we need to plug in a whole bunch of people, and, you know, and then the standard of hiring comes down. Because in all honesty, the Lord was right when he said the harvest is right, but the workers are few. That's a reality. There's not a lot of pastors out there, although we've got bazillions of them. You know what I mean? And so we got to be real cautious when it comes to that, when we hire and when we screen and all that. I remember years ago there was a buzz phrase that was used by pastors that were hiring and looking for staffers. And, and that buzz phrase was, we need to look for men who have an excellent pedigree. And he used to always think, what the heck does dog food have to do with it? You know, what is that? And, and, and it was like they had to have a great pedigree. And then when I said, what does that mean? It was that this guy has to have a good family heritage. He's got to have good parents, godly parents who have been in the church for a long time. Um, he's got to have excellent, an excellent, superb, spot-on education. He's got to be highly educated. And then he's got to be a fantastic communicator of God's word. And I remember hearing these things and reading about these things and saying, what about character and what about integrity and what about godliness and what about righteousness and what about a, a solid reputation and what about not being above reproach and all that and it was just the weirdest thing and so the church was so fixed on finding 
guys that had this good pedigree, and a lot of the things they were looking for weren't really even scriptural. Why? Because of the pressure to meet those ministry needs. You know, and it's kind of a sad, tragic thing. And so we look at this body of people, and 120 is a pretty good group there, man. That's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of potential staff members, I guess, is it not? And out of that group, we see in practice, in a, in a principle, that there were only two out of all of them. And I guarantee you, every one of these 120, these were legitimate, regenerated, transformed, loving Jesus like crazy, sacrificial saints. But yet out of the 120, there's two. There's only two that fit the bill. We need, to, we need to learn from that, and we need to be cautious in who we screen. And we need to, you know, before we hire people, and especially with a new church, we're going to be hiring people in the future, we need to get to know them, and not just base it on the piece of paper they have on their wall that says they went to school for six years, and they've got this. I'm not saying that seminary and education isn't a good thing. I think it's a fantastic thing. But we need to know that it doesn't, take regular men and turn them into pastors. That's the work of God. Education just helps that whole thing and helps them to be, you know, versed in the scriptures and all that stuff. So out of 120 in the upper room, we had two that met the qualifications. As we move to 24 and 25, we will see the fourth and final qualification for uh, the new apostle. Let's look at them again. These scriptures here. It says, And they prayed and said... You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen uh, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That last little bit of that scripture just scares the tar out of me. Which it says he turned aside to go to his own place. Well, what was his own place? Well, some say it was heaven. And I would say, no, he wasn't a regenerated true believer. He killed himself out of guilt, not out of anything else. Wow, that's a startling statement. But as we move, we see the fourth and final requirement, and that is that the new apostle had to be what? God's choice. <laughs> God's choice. God's choice. Look at what they did in verse 24. What does it say they did? It says they prayed. They sought the Lord. They prayed. They prayed. They prayed. This was a praying group. Now, this was a huge decision that had to be made. A replacement for Judas was a big deal, especially when you consider what happened with him, when you weigh out all the things that took place with him. Up to the trial and crucifixion, okay, all the way up to that Last Supper night, the apostles had fully, the other disciples, apostles, whatever you want to call them, had fully trusted Judas. They had no idea what he had going on behind the scenes. When Judas, and this is flushed out here, when Judas left the Last Supper, they thought he had what it says in the scriptures, gone to get supplies or to care for the poor. <laughs> Man, this guy had these guys fooled. He had them fooled in an incredible way. And that might play a part in why later on when they figured it all out and discerned it all and put it together, they made some pretty harsh comments about him like Luke just did. Oh, he forsook his role as an apostle and went to the place that he basically chose, the place that he belonged, which is Hades. They developed a strong distaste and dislike for this individual for what, they, for what he had done. 
But he had them fooled. Now, these things had to be in their minds as they chose his replacement. I think that they weighed that out. Look, this is a serious decision. The last guy choked big time. Horrible thing that took place. Obviously, they don't get the full grasp of everything yet, I think. And it had to happen, and it was part of the gospel. I think they got it. I don't know. But for the most part, they're weighing this thing out and saying, look at what happened to the last guy. We don't want a repeat of that. We want to make sure that we bring this whole thing up before the Lord in prayer. We want him to make the choice. We want to be as clear as crystal on this thing. And so they thought about that, and then they looked at those other qualifications, and then they brought it before the Lord. Now, Luke was a tremendous historian. He, he really was. He did an excellent job and must have done a considerable, amount of, a considerable amount of research because he wasn't present during these things. He had to have done a considerable amount of research, excellent research, because he captured the words of their prayer. He must have talked to somebody and said, what would you pray that night? What did you pray when you were in that room praying for your replacement? What did you say? What were the words of your prayer? He's got them. Look at what they prayed. We see it right in our text there again. And probably the halfway point of 24 or so, maybe it's the whole way. He says, you, this is what they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place is what they prayed. Now here's my little paraphrase of what they've asked. Basically what they said was, God, you can evaluate something that we cannot, which is the hearts of men, which is the hearts of these two men. See, they had put these two candidates through their grid. He was there from the beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he was a witness of the resurrection. He's going to be a witness too. We're certain of that. They've, you know, this, these two guys have met their qualifications, but now they're going to the Lord and saying, okay, look, you can do something, Lord, that we cannot do. You can assess the heart. We just don't have that ability, do we? Well, we can look at the actions and motions of people and look at how they do all these things and serve and show up at church and do pray and prayer and all these things, but in so many ways, we really can't tell what's happening in the inmost part of who they are, down deep inside of who they are. We can't tell. And so these guys put it right up there, man. They put it up there and say, God, you can evaluate something that we cannot, which is the hearts of these men. Please examine them and let us know the outcome. Point us to your guy is what they say. Now, what's interesting is that it would appear that the answer may not have been made crystal clear through prayer because verse 26 says that they cast lots. Or... Maybe since both men were perfectly qualified, they decided to cast lots that so, so that neither of them would get their feelings hurt for choosing one or the other. It could be that they cast lots. I mean, you've got two guys standing before you who are perfect for the job, who've met all the qualifications, right? How do you pick one without blowing the other one out or without upsetting his little group of friends over there or whatever? It'd be a difficult thing to choose. It would be. And so these guys met the criteria. So maybe they cast lots just as a means to, we got two names, it's going to fall on one of them, and both of them are qualified, so we'll go with that one. Maybe they did it to do that. Maybe they did it so that they could remove any appearance of favoritism or bias. What if all 11 were united on so-and-so, even though both were perfectly qualified? You know? And then, man, the other guy's like, what happened? Or maybe they had planned to cast lots the whole time. And it was customary to pray before doing so. I suspect that's the reason why. We really don't know, but they did it 
Nonetheless, now look at 26 with me. I've got to get a drink. I'm getting parched. It says, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This whole casting lots practice has always been a, a little strange to me. It's always seemed to be a, a mysterious, weird way to, to, to determine, you know, what you need to do or who you need to choose or whatever, right? There's probably some people out there who are big-time gamblers who say, look, gambling's okay. Because essentially casting lots in a way is a gamble. At least from our perspective, it certainly appears to be some sort of a gamble. So, but with the Jews, it wasn't weird at all. You know, in Jewish culture, especially in this day and age, casting lots wasn't weird at all. It, in fact, it was a common practice. In the Old Testament, casting lots was literally an approved method for determining the will of God. We see that in Leviticus 16.8, Numbers 26.55, Joshua 7.14, 1 Samuel 10.20, Proverbs 18.18, and so on and so on. Now, during this particular period, uh, this time frame, this first century thing that we've got playing out here, all of the offices and duties in the temple were settled through casting lots. That's how they made some of their big decisions or small decisions. It's like, oh, we've got to do this. Let's cast lots to figure out what to do. Let's figure out how to deal with this. Now, here's what they did. Here's how they did it. Here's what casting lots looks like when they do it. What they did was they took the name of each individual and they wrote their names on a stone, each one on a stone. Now, obviously, in our case, it was only two individuals, so there were only two stones. And then they'd place those stones into a jar, and they'd shake that jar until one flew out. And the one that flew out was God's choice, whatever it landed. And it would, usually they would sit in a circle or in a group, and they would sit there and do it, and then the lot would fall, or the stone would fall out into someone's lap. And then that would be God's choice. And it's really cool because Proverbs 16.33 testifies to this. It says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Isn't that cool? So casting lots was a totally approved thing that they did here. This wasn't weird. It wasn't that they did it because they liked gambling. They weren't at Black Oak. They did it because they needed to figure out who God's choice was based on God's prescribed methods for figuring it out. They looked at the guy's life. They looked at his involvement in the ministry. They looked at he was a witness of and to, he'd be one to the resurrection. And then they prayed. And then after their prayer, they cast lots. And what happened? They shook it. And whose stone fell out into someone's lap? Matthias's. That was God's choice. And what did they do right after that? The text says that he was numbered with the 11 apostles. What does that mean? It means that he was ordained right on the spot. He was appointed. He was ordained. They prayed, prayed over him. They probably anointed him with oil and said, you're our guy. We have no doubt about it. And so they appointed him, and he became Judas's replacement, the 12th apostle. Very interesting. Now, unfortunately, Matthias isn't mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures, so we, we don't really know anything about him. He's just mentioned here, and, and that's pretty much it, which is always a bummer for me because I like to learn about these guys and what they did and all that. But according to tradition, 
you know, church tradition that's been handed upward, I guess, for centuries and centuries and centuries. This guy was a faithful minister of the gospel. He assumed his role and was obedient and responsible and went out and proclaimed the gospel and talked about the resurrection. He did what he was supposed to do. He fulfilled his role as an apostle. And then tradition says that he was eventually killed by having rocks hurled at him repetitively over and over and over. They call it stoning. Somebody got mad at him for proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because the gospel turns worlds upside down. And, and they got so fiercely against him that they threw rocks at him until he wasn't breathing. And then after that, they cut his head off. You know, he met the same fate that, that pretty much all the other apostles did, minus John. He just died of old age. You know, and that's what tradition says. We don't know if that's accurate, but it's interesting. It's interesting that this man who was with Jesus um, experienced every aspect of his ministry pretty much front to back, you know, who was present with the church. I mean, the church is only 120 people at this point. Jesus has just left. You'd think the church would be thousands. No, it was only 120 people. It was a small body that God began with before he began to multiply. And this guy was one of those guys, man. He was there. And he went out and became a faithful witness. And tradition says that he was killed for that. He was martyred for that. In closing, I'd like to just make some, some statements here. You know, Christianity is extraordinarily different from the other 10,000 religions that are in the world. Can you believe there's 10,000 religions out there? There's all kinds of them. I mean, there's little tiny ones, too, that have like 10 people in it. And somehow they got entered into the Guinness Book of World Religions or something. I don't know. But there's 10,000, probably more now. Being an apologist in this day and age is, an, is not an easy thing. You've got 10,000 people, <laughs> 10,000 groups, I guess, to compete with. But there's 10,000 religions. But the thing is, Christianity is so extraordinarily different from all of them. It is the only one who has a God-man Messiah dying and resurrecting for sinners. None of the other ones have anything even close to that. Nothing like it. Only our faith, only Christianity has that. And because of that resurrection more particular, you know, we don't visit enshrined tombs every year to worship in the presence of piles of bones like Muslims do, like Buddhists do. We don't have a, a tomb to go visit that's enshrined with candles and imagery and, and all those things that's filled with bones because our God raised and he left that tomb. And the implications of that are that he's alive today, that he's alive through his spirit in the hearts of his people, that he's alive and ruling and reigning from his throne of grace in heaven. What a spectacular thing that we have been given in Christ. And that our faith is so different from every other faith. You know, I, I was someone who didn't dabble in a whole lot of religion beforehand, but I really thought that they were all the same before I was saved and all those things, and I had no idea. And after God saved me and brought me into his family and began to teach me things and all that, I found out just how extraordinarily different our faith is from everything else that's out there. 
I'm so convinced that it's the only real, living, breathing thing. And this is why. Because it's not really of us, is it? It's not something that, that we've conjured up or that, I mean, there isn't a person in this room who has made themselves a Christian. That's impossible. You cannot make yourself a Christian. You can make yourself a Buddhist. You can make yourself a Taoist. You can make yourself a Muslim. You can make yourself any of those things. But you cannot make yourself a Christian. That is the divine work of the incarnate Christ, the Holy Spirit, the exalted, glorified Christ, and the Father of all creation, of all. It's His work. He comes and sends His Spirit and, and, and does a work in our life and transforms us. He regenerates us. He saves us. We embrace that wholeheartedly because it's so spectacular. But it's His work. You can't make yourself what we are. He's the one that does it. Does man have a responsibility to receive it? Absolutely. But after you've done so, that grace of God has been at work and getting you there. It's such a beautiful thing. What we belong to in Christ is unfathomable compared to other things and is absolutely extraordinary and priceless. It really is. You know, I was thinking of a... And, and here's the thing, too. The evidences for these things, for the, cro for the life, the cross, the burial... You know, the, the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the evidences, the biblical evidences, the historical evidences, the circumstantial evidences for them are literally staggering. And people walk around thinking that there's just nothing out there that supports it. Are you kidding me? If you did any bit of research, you'd see. You may not choose to believe based on that evidence, but the evidence is there. And you can either look at the evidence and submit to it and, and enjoy what Christ has for you and receive him, or you can just turn your back on it. But it is a reality. It is every much a reality as World War II was. There's people now that are trying to say the Holocaust never happened. Really? Well, I watch the History Channel all the time, and I can see it. Is that just the work of Hollywood? You know, these things can be proven through biblical historical and circumstantial evidence. It's, there's just so much out there to look at. There's so much there to see. One guy that comes to mind, and I'll kind of end with this, there's one guy in particular who set out to prove his wife's faith false. Lee Strobel. He just thought she was a nut. Loved his wife. But this whole Jesus thing and this whole Christianity thing, come on now. And so what did he do? He embarked on a two-year campaign to study and to do the research and to look at all forms of evidence, historical, biblical, circumstantial. He went out to, on, and embarked on a journey to look at those things so that he could come around in a couple years and stand before his wife and say, here's my case against what you believe. <laughs> but instead of, <laughs> instead of building a case against the faith, God gave him a case for it. The man got saved. The man has become one of the premier apologists in all the world. He travels all over the world preaching Jesus, proving the truth, cra uh, truth um, claims of the Bible, 
What an extraordinary thing that, that happened with him. And so if you're here today and you're a skeptic, I'm glad you're here, for one thing. The evidence is out there. You could do some surveying yourself and read some things and look at some historical things. In fact, I'd love to point you to some of those things. Or maybe you just maybe keep coming back here and just listening, and it's okay for you to be skeptical. Even the Christian is skeptical once in a while. We're dealing with miraculous things. We're dealing with some things. Jonah was in a fish fit? Yeah. We don't have it all polished and figured out. There's some things that are mysterious there for us, but I've received them in faith and I believe. But you could just keep coming. If you're a skeptic, you could keep coming and listening. You could do some research. I I bid you to do so. You know, go out and, and try to prove it all wrong. Maybe something amazing will happen. Maybe in God's timing it won't. I don't know. Or maybe you're someone who's here today and the evidence is pretty much in. You know, you, you've been on a, on a journey to some degree of exploration and you've heard things over and you've heard the gospel and now you've, you've listened here today and you've heard how God has spoken and, and maybe he's opened your mind and heart and your eyes to see these things and understand them and maybe you're on the cusp of receiving Christ. You know, the Bible just says what you need to do is you just turn from your sin. You recognize you're a sinner. Just evaluate your life for a moment and look back at all the sins. You can't deny that you're a sinner. No one can. Oh, some people try to. Just look at your patterns and your history and the things that you practice and do. Measure them against God's standards of righteousness and just realize you're a sinner. And what do you do? You bring those things before the Lord and you repent and you turn from them. That's what you do. You bring them before Jesus Christ and you say, God, I'm a sinner. I need your grace. You call out for mercy. You call out for grace. And you receive the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture says you to do. That's what you have to do. And you become a follower of Christ. You're saved, redeemed. You'll be changed. You've been changed right there in that moment, but you'll be changed. You'll be sanctified. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of God's family. It really is. Repent, believe, and trust in Him. That's what the Bible says. And finally, my prayer for us as a church is that we would be one that bears witness to the risen Christ in our community and beyond, just as those apostles had done. That we would not only tell those around us about Jesus, but that we would show them through acts of loving kindness and charity. We wouldn't just say things, but we would show it through our actions. You know, our Savior lived, died, and rose from the grave so that we could be with Him and in Him. And so that we could go out and be witnesses to all that he's done and continues to do in creation.